Hello and welcome to Story Untold. I'm Martin Bauman and today I've got a special guest on the show, a fellow Ontarian who calls Victoria home these days. Simon Whitfield has had a heck of a sports career. He's a four-time Canadian Olympian. He's also a member of the Canada Sports Hall of Fame. He won the first ever Olympic gold in the triathlon at the Sydney Games in 2000. He closed out those ceremonies carrying the Canadian flag. He won silver eight years later in Beijing, then carried the flag once more at his final games in London in 2012. This is not your typical sports interview. We cover a lot of ground, and it zips all over the place at times, but I really appreciate the honesty he brought to this conversation. It's rare for an athlete to talk about what comes on the other side of dedication, the sacrifice that comes with training to be the world's best, and maybe the reckoning with some of that too, but a guy still figuring things out, and a pleasure to talk to. Here's his story. You know, it's been a while since you were training for an Olympic Games. Uh, how has your sleep changed in the, in the intervening changed. years? Oh, that's interesting. You know, I uh, that was my secret ability as an athlete was I could fall asleep anywhere in airport lineups, on planes, in between training sessions. And it hasn't changed um, that ability. But I, I don't know if I... Yeah, I'm still tormented a little bit by 3 a.m. As, <laughs> as anybody and everybody who uh, is has any awareness is, I'm sure, the same. Your, your alarm clock hasn't changed at all in the in the time since uh, you were training to now? You know, actually, initially it did. Initially, I had this real joy. One of the first things I did, I mean, I, as a kid, I was getting out. I was in the water at 5.15 a.m. in Kingston, Ontario. I'd walk from albert street to the university and i'd be we, in the water at 5 15 and you mm-hmm. get used to it and i had this 10 second rule that if i started to count to 10 seconds i never ever didn't get up by 10 and uh-huh. i'd always say to myself like is today the day i break it like i've done this for so long so years you know when i started as a little kid and then years later i'm in australia at the boarding house 5 15 in the water and the same thing i'm like well I'll just count it out and one two and i get up at 10 and when i retired I, I was like oh man i don't have to do that anymore and so I slept in a bit and had no schedule and was unstructured. And that haunts you. That structure, mm. I didn't realize how important it was until I was didn't have it anymore. You know, I wasn't systematic about my day and ritualized in my existence. And I paid for it. And so I've gone back to being very, you know, I make my little chart of the day, each uh-huh. day the night before each day. And I do my little 6.30 wake and I wake up basically 6.30 every day. Back to the 10 second rule. I don't even need it anymore. I'm old now. So I just like, I want to get out of bed. Yeah. I get out of my head. <laughs> right. Uh, you know, you've had a, a decorated career, Canada Sports Hall of Fame, uh, Olympic gold medal, Olympic silver medal, the Commonwealth Games gold. Uh, I'd like to, to go through some of those memories, if you'll indulge uh, looking back uh, for a while and, and also talk about what you're up to lately. Okay. Yeah. But maybe first, if we could go to those earliest years when you were in Kingston, take me to Cooper Street. What uh, <laughs> what that time period was like? Uh, Cooper Street was amazing. It was one block long. C O P P E R at one end and C O U P E R at the other end. <laughs> <laughs> it's like the French Canadians and the, Canadian, the English Canadians couldn't get a lot, couldn't decide. Um, it had a, a pothole at center between the Jennings house and my place and my the house I was born in. And that was center ice, and that's where street hockey and everything revolved around. And, you know, everything I do now, I always come back to that. I play Bayes United soccer here, and I really play because 
David Hill reminds me of Ted and, you know, Danny reminds me of Adrian. And it's, I feel like a kid again back at Cooper Street and mm. as a kid, you know, all the things. You were perpetually present, nothing else in the world. You weren't thinking about anything else. You were literally just playing out last second shots on, you know, you were trying to be Wayne Gretzky during the early 80s uh -huh. <laughs> on Cooper Street. And the, the joy and the love I have of sport comes from center ice at the pothole at cooper street it was it was road hockey for you were there other sports road there? hockey and uh everything you know i played every sport and i just and it gave me um, a wonderful perspective on sport and it gave me a tactical awareness that i think a lot of competitors that i people that i athletes that i raced against that came from endurance sport backgrounds swimming biking and running and then two triathlon they didn't have the same tactical awareness because they hadn't seen the the game a game evolve in 3d you know they mm. were used to races in one dimension swim bike run or mm -hmm. run or whatever it was and i just you know i played a lot of basketball i played badminton i played a lot of hockey i got my endurance from victoria park just playing from 7 a.m to 7 p.m and i understood the tactics from each of those sports and now as at, in my 40s i have a good you know sport iq i understand how the game flows because i played so many different sports and i can use those commonalities to apply tactics in different ways and find the seam i'm like the bishop in chess when the flow of the game's going that way i know uh -huh. how to go in the seam and play the other play the other way and that's my that's my gift you got to play more wisely now <laughs> <laughs> as yeah, i try to i tell myself that i can't quite do the I can't just run the entire time. I get sore now. Right. But I like that, you know. And I also have to make a deal with this. I, so if I play right on the striker, then I, I make a deal with the left back. If they're over 50 and they're a little lumbering, I say, hey, listen, I tell you what, I, I won't run around you if you don't just level. <laughs> <laughs> and we come to an agreement. And I'm just out there making truces. I told my kids the other day I want to win the Lady Bing Award. They're like, what's the Lady Bing Award? I was like, it's this hockey award where you're just like, you're not the best player, but you're nice. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody's favorite player. Yeah, they're sure. like, oh, that guy's fun to play with. He's, you know, he's polite and he doesn't, he calls his own fouls and he won't, you know, I don't play cheap, so. Yeah, that's a, that's a rarity in pickup sports sometimes. Uh, Cooper Street, was it, was it always the same place? Did you move around Kingston at all as a kid? Uh, I mean, until Australia came around. Was it always that same house? No, I moved around the corner when I was five, literally yeah. around the corner. I rode the piano around the corner. Okay. Um, yeah. So life revolved around Albert Street and Cooper Street. Yeah. And it revolved around Chalmers Church Hockey and Sydney Ward Soccer and it was fun. It was great. You know, just played sport and met Ted and Adrian and Jesse and Fareed and Dave down at Tyndall Field on Queen's campus and just had a real joyous sport. And when they didn't want to play or when they had homework to do and I was knocking on the door saying, do it later, I went and played by myself. And when no one wanted to play anymore, I rode my bike. And uh -huh. that's how endurance sport came around because it was just an excuse to be outside for longer <laughs> uh so your first triathlon 11 12 13 years old when was the charbot lake marathon uh, or not marathon rather but i guess it would be kids of steel <laughs> kids of steel yeah. in charbot lake um yeah in 1988 i did um uh, brandon hollywood and the hollywood family organized the charbot lake triathlon and i did it in a pair of boxer shorts and <laughs> and that's yeah i don't know it was just started I, you know i just loved the outdoor atmosphere of it it was a festival of sport where 
you did this thing, this excursion. There was timed, but I didn't really care about the time. And my sister and I were just given this great gift from our parents where it was the effort was appraised, not the not the result. So if I came home, my sister came home from a rowing regatta, mom and dad said, didn't say, how did you do? They say, how was your effort today? And you answered, and then they assumed that you did well based on your effort. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I that lesson, if that, if I could say one, that's the most important thing. My parents, Kate, my sister and I, among many other things, but it was just this unconditional, just this expectation that you would put in a great effort, but that the result and the result would take care of itself. And it freed us. It gave us great freedom to express our gifts and our hard work, knowing that it was about just that, expressing yourself. It wasn't about results. And then you run into all these people who are fixated on the outcome, and you're just immersed in the joy of the process and the struggle of the process. Yeah. And funnily enough, you come through. You know, They're preoccupied with placings, and you're preoccupied with the things you can actually control. Your parents weren't the embarrassing ones on the sidelines, or maybe embarrassing <laughs> for different reasons, yeah, uh, as, well as most parents become at some point. Yeah, uh, yeah, sure. I mean, and I get it now as a parent. I see it. It's hard to, you know, you got to keep your emotions in check. Right. And it's not about, it's not your game. Um, and it's certainly commentating the entire time. And I, it reflects on how I, I parent now. Like, I, you see me at a cross-country race with my daughters. I don't, I make an effort to, I try and help them at the beginning with some cues and such, but I also give them space. I also make them like, I remember quite distinctly my oldest daughter saying, come to the start, help me warm up. And I say, oh, geez, I'd love to, I'd want to, but this is yours. You know, this isn't for me. I'm standing over there. Mm-hmm. Your mom and I will be over there and I got your back, you know. And then during their actual events, I don't run along screaming out their names saying, go, go, go. I just watch. Keep my mouth shut, actually. Just watch. <laughs> you no, know, it's really hard. Like, I like to sp- I like to run around the course and peer out from behind a tree and watch, but I don't cheer because yeah. it's their event, and I you know they I like to see I know for myself it's about this internal drive and internalizing your eff- your focus, and it's not to be it's counter it's counterproductive to be drawing their focus mm-hmm. away to like the approval of or the celebration or the like encouragement of someone else. It's an internal thing. You're trying to pass on the same things that were allowed to you when you were uh, a young young one yeah. playing sports and competing. Yeah. So any discussion around what just happened, it's not what happened. It's what happened next, right? And so great athletes don't celebrate bad. They just move on to the next thing. And if you want, we watched the World Series when Boston won the latest World Series. Mm-hmm. Milton Bradley um, tries to steal second, and he gets tagged out by by a country he's out by a country mile mm-hmm. he does not even flinch he doesn't even flinch he just it's like it didn't happen the boston bench didn't really acknowledge it he didn't do the antics oh my god i can't believe i just yeah. did that blah 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 he just turned and ran back to the thing and was like on to the next play yeah and he hit a home run like two innings later and he was the al mvp and world series champion like that's that is a great athlete he doesn't celebrate bad the next thing he lets his brain see is the right thing not the wrong thing so i almost calling to my to our team and to myself and to players i play with play it back right Mm. don't celebrate wrong none of this theatrics and that comes back to the antics of you know i can't believe that just happened and all the antics is is actually you're worried about how you're being perceived. I better appear to be disappointed. Okay, yeah. Right? And, but actually the next thing to do is if you watch great athletes, 
I'm going to say we refocus on the next thing that happens. Mm. So watch. I like, I immediately, and every once in a while I lose discipline and I let it click and I get frustrated and that's part of it. Right. Yeah. But then I acknowledge that and I recalibrate and then next time it happens, I do it right. Uh I don't celebrate bad. And then the last thing my brain saw was wrong. And then the next time it happens, it happens. Surprise, surprise, wrong again. Uh Uh-huh. And I think it's, I'd call it, play it back right, play it back right. Yeah. Now, this is this is a mentality that you can adopt now, being in your 40s. Is this something that was practiced in your earliest days, too, or is that learned through time? I'm, I, w- I just intuitively knew it back then. And when at times when I wasn't successful, I was moving away from that. Yeah. So there were times I was, you know, I'm, um, infatuated with my own story. I went mm. through that, too, mm-hmm. just like everybody you know, I, that's part of the journey. But I tell you what, when I did well and when I was expressing my gifts and and expressing all the hard work I did and and representing myself, I I did it by relying on intuit action and mm. not pre- worrying about perceiving how I was being perceived. When does it go from I'm having a good time doing this? You know, you've done your first triathlon, the Kids of Steel at Charbot Lake. When does it go from this is fun? to I want to be the world's best at this or I want to compete with the world's best at this? Uh, right away. <laughs> I wanted to be the best in the world at something. I used to joke, if it was tiddlywinks, I would have gone for it. Uh-huh. I, my dad said early on, get obsessed, stay obsessed. End of sentence. You uh-huh. know? And so I did. I was obsessed with it and thought about it every single moment of every single day and, and paid a price for that. Mm. But one of the prices I, you know, one of the benefits of that is... Uh, I thought about it more than anybody else did. Right. I got to Sydney and I'd seen that image of that race. I played out every scenario in my head over and over and over again. I, I'd watched the video properly. I'd watched the win over and over and over again. I believed myself. I did the work that was required. And then it got out of my own way. Mm. And uh, that focus and drive was with me from early on. And it's always been a journey and will continue to be a journey of... I was supposed to say containing. It's not containing. It's just finding time to express that and when to express it. No one to hold them and no one to show them. Like that, you have to learn that because otherwise everything, you become that hyper competitive yeah. that can't turn it off. And A, you're no fun to play with. Yeah. And B, that's not a satisfying existence. Satisfy. It's not, you know, it's satisfying to work hard. It's satisfying to apply yourself. It's satisfying to express your gifts. Um, the results start to play with that or diminish that and so they can you they can be used as benchmarks and they play an important role and obviously we need competition for evolution but that is an end result it's not you just apply yourself and that's the beauty of mastery mastery is completely process orientated it's not an outcome and i the real joy of mastery i i took that on really er, very early and that's i miss the hmm. part i miss the hmm. joy of mastery You've got to be involved in the process, I guess, to have that 5 a.m. wake up, to be able to immerse yourself in what it takes to train for an event like that. Yeah, that's it, isn't it? It's like, what's the hardest part? Walk right at them. <laughs> mm. And 5.15 as a kid was hard and wasn't particularly, you know, it's like hard to fall because I'm falling asleep during the rest of my day. But, right. but that's the commitment it took. And I love that walk right at it and then to this day that's my philosophy on everything now is if you struggle with it walk right at it Hmm. those demons in the dark you know 
they die when you shine the light on them. They're not there. And that's the same thing with any effort. It's like you struggle with that. You can, you can find ways to avoid it or you can walk right at it. And, and my personal mission is for everything in my life is to walk right at it, walk right at it. And that betrays me at times. Difficult, I think, to, to uphold it all the time, but uh, something to strive towards for sure. I guess. I mean, the big thing is, and you said the word strive there, is like there's one thing I try not to do is I don't really try to strive. For, mm. I, I really, I truly feel or try, I work towards contentment. Mm. I accept the struggle as part of it, and it's actually where the good stuff is. Mm-hmm. I, and I walk right at it. And yeah, you're right. Like there are things that are really difficult, and it's and the temptation is to to move away from them. But the great joy in life and any progress you will make is because you you're not fragile. And when mm. you see circumstance that you are afraid of, you walk right at it. I don't know. Walk tall and carry a big stick. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so you fall in love with the sport or you become consumed with it, whatever, whatever you want to describe it as uh, something that you want to become the best at. And Along the same sort of timeline, you go off to Australia. Your parents send you to boarding school there. What, what did they send you to boarding school for? Uh, I mean, I don't know if my parents sent me or if I just <laughs> begged my parents because I, I didn't realize it was an all-boys school. Did you want to go? Was that it? Was oh, that yeah, it? yeah. I, I truly – I was enamored with everything Australian as a 13. My dad's an Aussie, and right. I was, you know, cricket and kangaroos and – and the whole thing and uh went there and absolutely enamored with everything aussie and so went there as a 16 year old and with the intention of staying a year and then and quite frankly discovered the great wonderful things about being a canadian mm. and truly took leaving and i stayed there for five years mm-hmm. but within a few days of the boarding house uh this is 1992 in australia yeah. the boarding house so and this is a lot of the kids that haven't been exposed to a lot of multicultural elements. Mm-hmm. So I grew up with a Japanese kid, an Egyptian kid. I grew up in a, at Kingston's a fairly diverse city. It's, it's maybe it's a little more Caucasian than at the time, at then, but I still, my friend group was diverse mm-hmm. and I went to a boarding house that wasn't it was it was segregated in a sense it was mm. it wasn't officially segregated but there was a place over there for them and there was a place over there for us yeah and i quickly understood that that was not okay that diversity is the great gift of diversity and and stood my ground on it and in a boarding house and learned i was very proud to be Canadian. <laughs> and with a you know with a great deal of respect for australians yeah sure Aussie, 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 but truly that experience was profound for me was to be in the boarding house and say, no, nah, that's not okay. Yeah. No, no, you can't call that person that. That's not okay. And standing up for it. 16 years old. Uh, that's a heck of a time to be put into, I mean, those situations happen at any, at any age, but to move away from home and you don't have necessarily the, those models anymore. I mean, your parents aren't right there to show you right from wrong of, of here's how to, to be and do things, but to have that testing ground. Uh, you know, they went, so here I've said that Aussies are this way, and it's not something I particularly. Certain Aussies were at that time were that way, but um, I will say the one thing I truly admire in Aussies is they're not risk averse. Mm. A Canadian, when I said when I was 16 years old, I said I want to go to Olympic Games, represent Canada, hear the anthem. 
the Canadian coach said, hey, why don't we just start with, you know, right. maybe you should stick to running and maybe just, why don't you just start with your 16th at junior nationals? Why don't you, why don't you try for top 10 first? And within six months, I was at the boarding house and Chuck, the Chuck Arden, the, the swim coach said, okay, mate, what are you doing here? And I said, I want to go to Olympics. I'm going to represent Canada. I want to, I want to win a gold medal. And he said, all right, then get in lane eight, <laughs> get in the pool. <laughs> and that's an Aussie. That's so Aussie, you know, they, they, they really, they're not risk averse. Yeah. They're really, they say, right, mate, you know, get after it. And so that, to have that, that balance, that, that temperance that of a Canadian that, that, you know, can maintain composure and do, and see things in a systematic and pragmatic way. Mm-hmm. And then to have that bit of Aussie that's, that's not risk, it's not risk averse. Mm. Um, it worked. It suited me. That's what you got to do, right? You got to take the the best elements of mm-hmm. whatever influences are around you. Yeah, there you go. This is 1992. You're away from home. Is this a, like a, you're living on? Is it a campus? Or are you board with a boarding family, a host family? What's the arrangement? This is campus. This is yeah. an old, like classic. Um, I don't know Hogwarts picture right. where <laughs> Harry Potter was. It was like you're taking me back. But day one was a big hall. Yeah, you know with the picture of the queen of england on one end uh-huh. and uh cathedral windows it's a posh place it yeah a, it was one of the great schools of australia knox grammar school is, mm-hmm. is you know hugh jackman was there okay <laughs> so i don't know what that means but i'm very proud of it it was a great school it yeah. was a terrific school but the boarding house was the deep end you know yeah and uh yeah i went there january 1992 and came back well I never came back I, I moved to Victoria f- basically from there yeah and it had a profound influence on my life including a relationship with my mom and dad who were you know living in Kingston and then now mm-hmm. Ottawa and kind of sent their son off at 16 thinking he's gonna be back in a year and right and from then on I saw them twice a year and right it's had a profound impact we have a great relationship love them dearly talk with them a couple times a week but never again lived in the same spot you know? uh-huh. and my daughter's now turning 12 and i think oh my goodness that's four years right i can't imagine yeah so it was a big we paid we paid a price for it um with traditions and connection and Mm. they were huge supporters of my career and my my career myself my sister and i they were wonderful um but they made sacrifices and Mm -hmm. now that i'm older and i have kids i go oh whoa those are real sacrifices. Start to, start to recognize what your oh. parents would have uh, <laughs> felt and, and were thinking about. I can't imagine my daughter going off and hearing from her every once in a while. Right. You know, on the other side of the world. It's an extraordinary. Like, were you itching to get out at that time? Not to necessarily to get out, but to go somewhere to explore or to be in another country? Um, yeah, I mean, I was, I was itching to push ahead with this thing I love to do. Yeah. And I think there was no containing me then, you know. I I became friends with Hoxley Workman. He's this musician, and I just think he's the greatest. Yeah, yeah. And he said that he didn't find music. Music music found him. Mm-hmm. He would sit in his garage, and he would just play and play and play. And then when, when it was too cold in the garage, he would sit in the living room, and he would play and play and play during the commercials and the sitcoms. And his brother would say, as soon as the sitcom commercial came on, he would just play, play. <laughs> and I can relate to that, you know. I was just obsessed with it. Play, 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 uh-huh. sport, sport, sport. And, and relentless pursuit. And I paid the price for it, too. Mm. And truly. You had, 
a unique gift in some senses in being in Australia at the time because when Sydney was announced as the host city for 2000, I mean, you were there. You were able to then plot out uh, what's this course going to look like? What what in my environment is going to look like? Uh, it was familiar. I mean, it became sort of like a home field advantage in some senses. Or did it feel that way? Uh, yeah. So long ago now. <laughs> um, I'm sure the story's pivoted in my head, but... It, I had a home field advantage, yeah, I did. And I had a boarding house that was, you know, this was years after I left the boarding house, but Knox Grammar School came and represented. And uh -huh. so did Kingston. Ted and Adrian, who had known since I was two years old, came to every Olympics I participated in. And um, and they were there in Sydney, but also Ben Dunn and Nate Dunn and James Edwards and Hamish mm -hmm. Kelly and the boys from the school were there. And they had painted faces green and gold on one side and red and white on the other uh -huh. and then my 96 year old grandmother was across the, it was magic wow. you know it's like wow. fairy tale yeah I and mean, I will say the only thing I wondered at the time was the two things I wondered was oh, will I get goosebumps again because <laughs> mm. I had you know because I had this pinnacle experience this paramount like right wow that just happened and then I wondered like oh wait like how do you recreate all that circumstance you know this this it almost it's almost too, too, it was too much, you know, like, how do you win again? And so that's what was really satisfying about Beijing was having to re to manufacture and orchestrate again something that, that through, without the advantage of fairy tale. Right. <laughs> and that was very satisfying. Yeah. It resulted in another medal. Uh, to indulge in the fairy tale for a moment <laughs> of, of Sydney. Uh, you're 25 years old at the time. Maybe even before then, I mean, before you have those first games, what are you doing? Like, how, how are you getting by? What are you doing to, to eke out a living that's going to allow you to train, to keep feeding yourself uh, so that you can make a go of this? Um, I mean, right now we're, I don't know, what are we, 10 blocks from where I lived. Um, I moved to Victoria and volunteered at George Jay Elementary. Uh -huh. and I raced in I moved here after I raced in the French Iron Tour and I, I made $7,000 racing the seven races eight races in nine days and I made the first money I'd ever made yeah I made $3,600 at the St. George <laughs> Triathlon in Penrith in 1996 the first pro race I ever did I won you got a good I memory made, I made 3600 bucks, and then I made seven grand the next year and then I saved up Twenty five thousand and bought a condo in the Mosaic, uh -huh. and that was kind of just you know it was before I'd ever been to the Olympics. It was just and I just squirreled away money and yeah. I paid myself first because that's what David Chilton told me to do in the uh -huh. <laughs> And I saved my ten percent. I paid myself first, and I was pretty. I don't know. I was pretty responsible with money. And yeah. you know when I was, I had app. I had. Parents who made a decent income and dedicated yeah. and helped me credit card race. So they mm -hmm. helped me when they, when I couldn't make my credit card. Mom and dad right, said, here's 800 bucks for your flight. We got, yeah. It got you. And I had that opportunity and I took advantage of it. And yeah. blessed be those who take take on the opportunity. You know, mm. like it's to me, it's like not it, there's no guilt in taking the opportunity. For sure. What there yeah. is sadness and not. You know, mm. if you have the opportunity, you're given it through just pure and utter luck of circumstance. Then, then go express your gifts, mm. you know. And if you don't, then go manufacture it and and get the res and earn the resiliency that comes with that. 
Um, and so, yeah, I don't know. I just squeaked along making a living racing. Yeah. I made $2,500 here, 3000 bucks there. I lost a bunch of money there. And, <laughs> and then I went to Sydney and I had a strange experience with that because I suddenly went from earning you know, a moderate wage right. as a triathlete to making real in- a real income. Like I made more money than I knew what to do with right? and paid a price for that too. Mm, yeah. You know, all of a sudden I've traded, I had this really, I was really sad advice. So someone close to me said, um, make hay while the sun shines. Right. And I traded mastery for hay. And uh-huh. I would, if I ever look back and think, if I ever say to a young athlete and they say to me, well, sponsorship and this and that, I say, hey, the joy of mastery just that mm. like figure out how to pay your bills so you can express yourself yeah and and don't live decadently you know yeah. be 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 minimal and enjoy mastery that because you won't always have access to it mm. you know throughout your life you may come back to it but there will be times when you don't have it and that's certainly my life now as i'm not immersed in mastery and i have the benefit of you know i pay attention to my kids right um yeah and i i engage with my community and do those things but the joy of mastery don't trade mastery for hay it's, mm. not, it's not worth it not a good trade no nah, it's not yeah the hay hay comes and goes the sun shines tomorrow the truth mm. is it doesn't matter you're making hay with the sun shines like you figure that out then right you know you'd be just to the great joy of mastery to be 25 years old when that first Olympic gold comes I mean and and when the opportunities are starting to come in I mean I think that is that's a difficult time in some respects to start to make those sorts of decisions about what's important what's not trying to listen to good advice bad advice parse through what uh, you know how you should respond next and train next what's important and I think maybe one of the hardest things to do is to you know, you have a pinnacle experience, like a gold medal or anything, what comes after that in how to respond to that and handle that and not, not turn that into, because so often I think it'd be like, what do I do now? Or how do I live up to this? How do I repeat this again? And then you've turned this like great, awesome experience into something uh, that all of a sudden puts pressure on you to going ahead. How do you respond to that? Or how did you respond in the intervening years? Um, I don't particularly know how I responded. I mean, it, it, it's subject to memory, right? So I mm-hmm. can kind of skew it now. So sure. I'll, yeah. as I'll say, I'll say that my memory now suits my bias, you know, right. the kaleidoscope of memory. Right. What I will say is that I was given the blessed opportunity in that, the great opportunity in that was that it was really, it was difficult. It was not a free, it's, there's no free lunch. Like mm. all of the... All of the accolade and all of the um, adulation was I paid for with isolation, and mm. I was I existed um, beyond the pale. I don't know how to describe it any other way. You exist in the middle land between the people that celebrate and ornament you, mm-hmm. who don't really exist. You know, you don't belong there. There's mm. no belong- sense of belonging there. You're an ornament, and you get passed around with best of intentions. Mm-hmm. And then the people that you were with that you truly had a sense of belonging with you don't you no longer exist there because you venture beyond you know you're kind of like they're like oh the rituals that you had with the people that you had belonging with you no longer have Mm. and you have not to get too esoteric but you have a very strong sense of being 
you have a strong sense of your story because you're repeating it a lot. Mm-hmm. You're repeating it back, you're repeating it back. Your people want to know it. They want to interview you and ask about these right. questions. And so you have a very strong sense of being. And f- in my experience, I lost a real sense of longing. I didn't, there was nothing that I desired for. I just went and acquired it. So mm-hmm. you don't appreciate, you have a surplus, you have an abundance of, you don't um, experience much scarcity. And so you don't long for anything. And with that, you, you lose a sense of belonging. You don't belong anywhere. You exist beyond the pale in this kind of no man's land. And I didn't, and maybe the hardest part is you don't know it. You can't see the mm-hmm. forest for the trees. So you're like there and you're thinking, well, this is great. I can, I'm having lunch at the Queen of England. I'm right. having lunch with Sir Edmund Hillary. Like, you know, I'm a big deal <laughs> right. at the time. And you don't, you don't want to be that way, but it just happens to you. Mm-hmm. People tell you enough times and they adulate you enough times and they make you the literally the flag bearer right then eventually you believe it right mm-hmm. and then and then with that you lose a sense of longing and a sense and with that a sense of belonging so you pay for it what is the etiquette like for a for a lunch with the queen that's <laughs> 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 um, cool it was what i'd experienced there you go like that's the other thing though is i also had incredible experiences right like, I've had, i did i had lunch with the queen of england and you the so the etiquette is you each tell a story it goes uh-huh. around the table yeah how, how big of a table are we talking how many are seated <laughs> uh, there six six, six. Of us oh, at the that's table. a pretty small table yeah at the empress hotel here in victoria okay yeah and she goes around the table you're told beforehand the etiquette officer comes and tells you you each get a moment with the queen but you don't all talk at once there's no this is uh-huh. not a table discussion yeah she's going to turn to her right and engage the person to the right and they're you're going to say something She's going to ask you a question or you're going to interact in a way. You're going to have your conversation and then she's going to move to the next person. She's going to go around the table uh-huh. and then lunch is done. Yeah. So they're like, think about that. Like you two, myself and Carol Shields, the author, are at the one end, the end of the table. <laughs> so yeah. it came around to us as we watched Richard Hunt and David Anderson and Alan Lowe have their moment with the Queen England and then it. It comes around to you, and like yeah. you're literally like, okay, here we go. <laughs> Have a moment with the Queen of England. How are you in those situations? Are you a are you a people person? Can you, <laughs> can you handle it? Or um, like I said, uh, I said I I have a question, um, Your Majesty, and she said, oh yes, and I said, um, I went to a boarding house in 1992 and there was a picture of you at the end of the hall and we had to tie or tie in front of the picture of you and when we were finished the boarding master would say would the queen of england approve so my question was like (laughs) how did did i do and she said you did wonderfully and i said is that the royal approval and she said yes that was it yeah so i had the royal approval for tying a tie there you go there you go that's my one moment with the queen what fascinates me, I think, about anybody that competes in Olympic Games, and especially multiple games, it is such a window from one game to the next four years where you've got to live with the result, whether you like that result or not. I mean, you're putting years of training into a moment that can last, you know, a very finite amount of time, and then you've got to kind of regroup and get back at it again. What is that like? Or what is your relationship with uh, failure like when things don't go according to plan? How do you respond in those moments? Uh, I don't know. Different in every moment. Um, you have pe- good people around you, and you have honest and critical, constructively 
constructive mm. feedback and you're in, in, engaged and uh, then you respond in a you know what's next manner and mm-hmm. if you don't then you wallow in the isolation and in yeah. the despair and in the narrative of what happened what didn't go right and I went through both both I yeah. went through every version of that you know I went through blame and casting blame on others and pointing fingers and I went through self-reflection and I went through um success and uh-huh. everything that came with that and I honestly I wouldn't I mean I, you don't get a choice to have it any other way no so you don't there yeah. you go but I wouldn't have it any other way um, the most challenging thing I've ever been through definitively would be the the breaking apart of a, a relationship and mm. and divorce and uh, with kids involved and that's the most proud of it I'm also my kids are gonna grow up and know that mom and dad worked hard at it and mm. walk straight at it and and learn from each other and show great love for each other and respect and struggle and struggled and continued to struggle and worked at it every day yeah and so if that apply that to the experiences i had with quadrennials and olympics it's the same thing i had those experiences you know continue to prepare you for the rest of life which only gets more and more convoluted <laughs> convoluted cacophony of next results uh-huh. <laughs> uh you've had you had four games uh 2000 2008 2012 when did you know that it was time to move on beyond uh competition to whatever would come next i just wasn't willing to make the sacrifices required mm. as plain as that you know i just there was a time in my life when i thrived on the sacrifice truly i thought everything i did was based around the idea that was was i sacrificing and giving more than other people were yeah to fortify myself for the next moment i had to compete and then yeah the moment i realized i didn't want to make those same sacrifices that and with it the you know the joy of mastery and the the journey of mastery and the the struggle of it um and then yeah time also just decides for you mm. i will say that i way the way the universe works you i got i acquired a book in 2013 i want to say i read it sometime in 2014 and it explained a lot to me and it's called butcher's crossing by john williams and it talks about will andrews coming from harvard in 1880 to the end of the train line in nebraska and and he wants to go bison hunting and he goes and he goes to his uh, his uh, uncle's friend who says to him, don't do it. And he says, no, 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 I've got to venture into the plains. I want to go bison hunting. And he says, well, fine, then that's the guy to go talk to, but I'm telling you, don't do it. So he goes and talks to the guy, and the guy says, oh, yes, Mr. Andrews, I can take you to the greatest bison field you've ever seen. I'm going to take you to a valley in Colorado. We're going to travel across the plains. You're going to experience the great, great wilderness of the West, wide open mm-hmm. the West. You're going to get to the plains and you're going to see the bison and we're going to take all the bison in the valley. And Will Andrews says, count me in, I'm in. And so they travel across the plains, they travel into the valley and all the bison are there. And they start to take the bison and take the bison all summer long. They take all the bison. And at the end of the summer, the cook comes to him and says, Mr. Andrews, it's time to go. The snow's going to come in and the pass is going to close. And he goes to the guide and he says to the guide, it's time. I think we should go. The cook's saying we should go. The, the weather's going to change and the 
And the guide says, hey, we said we're coming for all the bison. We're getting all the bison. Mm-hmm. And so they stay and they take all the bison and the blizzard rolls in and it closes the pass. And they spend, they have to winter in the valley and half of them die. Mm. And I learned so much. From, I always go for one bison too. <laughs> <laughs> and I learned when I read that book and I thought, uh. oh my goodness, that's me. I go yeah. for one bison too many. So I will say the London Olympics were, were maybe one bison too many, mm. you know, but whatever it is what it is. And right. Great experience. And, but paid a big price. Yeah. Yeah. Half of us died. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Figuratively. What, uh, what do you learn in those moments, uh, of, I mean, you talk about sacrifice, right? That it, that it comes, what comes with the focus required to, pursue something uh, as rigorously as I think as it, as it takes to compete on the world stage. Maybe there's other ways of doing it. I don't know. But it seems like uh, at, at any kind of discipline like that to be the world's best, that that requires a certain level of just pure dedication and single-mindedness. Uh, what what came on the other side of that? And uh, and what has retirement been like now to uh, to find a different balance, perhaps? Yeah, I mean, you pay for with relation. I I paid with relationships. I didn't nurture relationships, mm. so whether it be friendships or more, you know, or closer. Mm. Um, and that's the price I paid. And when I look back, it's the it's in the end, it's the people. You know, it's the experiences are because of the people. You can go any place in the world and they'd be spectacular, and you can say this is great and awe inspiring. But what you really truly remember actually is the people you went with and the mm. people you missed. And if that's, uh, if, I don't know, that, that, there you go. I, I sacrificed all relationships and to this day still pay for it. And that will be the cost I bear, continue to bear and work to not rectify. There's no rectifying it. Mm. There's just, there's what happened and then there's what happens next. And do you live into your values? Do you show up day to day? Do you contribute in a positive manner to other people? you grateful for the experience do you feel enlightened by it at the end of the day you know that's the litmus test i apply to everything i try and do um i don't i'm not always successful at it mm. um but now i work as best i am able towards nurturing and fostering positive relationships with people and i fail at it too you know yeah i continue to it's not a straight line <laughs> but whatever um and what came of all that is you know when you feel humbled and and or plus humiliated mm. then you find there's i don't know without sorrow there's no joy so that's it you know right you you learn the lessons from it and you either point and blame or you bear responsibility and find meaning and there you go we, we talked earlier about uh, alarms, <laughs> setting alarms and, and the idea of, of routine and, uh, and the importance of a routine or what you found to be the case. What were you, like, what were you excited for when the retirement came? What did you think it was going to look like? And, um, and how did that go for you? And what does it look like perhaps now if, if that looks different than you thought it might then? Yeah, I just gave away all, any and all structure. It was mm. completely un, non, non-systematic in my approach. And again, I truly appreciated then my partner at the time, Jenny, how systematic and intentional she was and what a the base, the um, the role, truly was able to appreciate the role that she played by her not being there mm. and saw the chaos that ensued, you know. 
Um, I think that 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 feminine energy is the mist that guides us. Mm. That masculine energy is this action energy that takes action, and the feminine energy is the mist that guides us. And we all have both. Um, and I think I lost touch with the mist that guides me. I relied so much on her. And then when she was no longer there, I have had made had made this or had this search of this to find that that ability within myself to the mist that guides me. And because I had enormous capacity to take action and let go of that, you know, the guide. And mm. so that's been the journey of more than anything. Um, there's some. Uh, you, the routines and the self-regulation that uh, exacerbates it, it, it exaggerates it mm-hmm. because you're not as systematic in your day and because you're not self-regulating the same way and your biochemical and the chemical changes you go through from not having those outlets, whether they be competitive or simply just the expelling of all that energy. Yeah. But, and so it comes out in other ways and I paid a price for that, but whatever that's the journey you know there's the struggle walk right at it <laughs> there's what the mist the guide to my guide to me tells me now walk right at it yeah what, what, do you, what do you think the price is or, or was that that comes from uh, the lack of routine perhaps uh, or you know indulging in moments of oh I finally I don't have to to wake up at this time or I don't have to swim today or, or bike today or run today what came out of that for you um you know, the, there's it's the thing I learned from my dad. There's constructive defiance and there's chaotic defiance. So mm-hmm. you're you're, and that's what you're essentially participating in. Isn't it? Is you wake up every day and you have the opportunity to keep moving forward. And in doing so, it's an act of defiance because to no, you could also not. Mm-hmm. You could simply just not participate anymore. And we call that by a lot of different names, but it's really at the end of the day, it's whether or not you decide to keep going with your life or right. not mm-hmm. and to not to me is you're defiant mm. you know it's the one agency you have the one thing you can be assured is like well no i'm gonna keep walking mm. and keep walking and keep walking and in doing so am i going to do it in a constructive manner or am i going to be chaotic in my defiance and so i think i moved from constructive defiance to chaotic defiance by having by taking a completely unsystematic approach no self-regulation no daily rituals didn't live into my values didn't even understand that for a while and then came back around to have to face all those things and then decide okay how do i want to live do i want to do am i going to participate with agency in this and am i Mm. going to be constructive in my defiance or am i going to keep being chaotic you know Mm. and that's its own journey and I think you try and do right 50.0000.1% of the time, <laughs> you know, as best you were able. Right. Slowly make progress forward and keep the mantra, you know, there is no clarity. There is the faith to live on and the will mm. to endure and to keep walking. Yeah. There you go. Your dad sounds like a smart guy. Got a lot of, uh, <laughs> a lot of, a lot of words of wisdom. Uh, sure, and, and you know, and and struggles like everybody else. Yeah, you know, has, yeah. has his own has had his own struggles and and has this wonderful mist in my mom that helps guide him, and and uh, you know, quite the pair. Mm. And, and he's had his own, like I said, like alluded to, he's had his own struggles, and so do I. So does mm. everybody. Where do you find contentment today, or where do you find uh, passion, purpose today? Um, 
by not (laughs) (laughs) there's a big thing around finding purpose and and a reason i don't know i bear my responsibilities as best i'm able do as best as i can and i work hard every day at it and i make my lists and i check them twice and i try and make progress um and i real and i don't and and i'm and i temper my expectations Hmm. and i don't strive for more i don't really try and define a purpose i just try and do take one step at a time and i'm content in my struggle you know and I struggle like everybody else does. I wake up at three o'clock in the morning at dice and I go, what the fuck is going on? <laughs> and I get up the next day and I bear responsibility and I do my best to be in service to others. And now I do it with a little less, uh, I think I did it quite, what's the expression? Quit, quitzotically. Yeah. Okay. You know, like I did it with a lot of pronouncement and, and you know declared chivalry yeah and i declare and i it becomes very manufactured and Mm. and now i try as best i'm able to just do it i just do the best job i can and i try not to fail 50.1 percent of the time (laughs) as best i'm able and i and that's all i expect of the people around me and i'm quick to forgive and do my best and expect the same of the other people around me and i think a lot about i you know frankly i think a lot about things like who would you search for in the dark if they were missing uh-huh. <laughs> you know i think a lot about um the the idea of the hearth and the fire and and protecting that and what that continuity means of your existence through family um i think a lot about those things mm. and i worked hard to and i find a lot of meaning in those how do you do these days with um, embracing perhaps your your accomplishments that you've had throughout the years? Are you are you reluctant to look back and um, you know bring out the the gold medal or the silver medal or to you know when you get an acknowledgement like a, like a sports Canada Sports Hall of Fame? Can you appreciate those things for what they are, or is it does it feel odd? I don't know. What is what is that like? Um try i really try to appreciate it and i try to leave space for it um but it it does become the same story you know over Mm. and over again i like i often fantasize about being in a different country where someone had absolutely no idea not because unless you follow where to follow someone who has achieved notoriety and for whatever reason you, I don't think people are quite appreciate it. They see it as one instant, one mm. circumstance. And then if you were to ever to say like, "Oh, it's weird being recognized," like, "Oh, okay, get over yourself." You know? uh-huh. But follow somebody around, and I've only experienced a very, very small sliver of it. Mm-hmm. I cannot imagine what it would be like to be truly universally recognized. Mm. Yeah, my my fifteen minutes of fame was truly that. You know, like walking on the street, and most people have no idea who I am. But there's a certain sliver of people who are mm. like, "Oh, I remember where it was when that happened." And then that story takes over and it has a story. It has a place of its own. Yeah. And I get in, I do get in a lot of situations to this day, 20, almost 20 years later where people, the, that me, the Olympian takes up all the space. And Mm. if I fill in any of that space, they go, gosh, get over yourself or you got to stop living in the past. I'm like, shit, well you asked, (laughs) you know, like truly like, so I have a strange relationship with it. And yeah. I have a lot of resentment for it. 
Mm. Honestly, like I, it costs a lot Mm. and it, uh, and it takes up all the space sometimes. Sometimes I just like, oh man, I just love to be anonymous and walk into this situation and not have a reputation. Yeah, yeah. Because you become a meme. Yeah, yeah. You become really too. You become a meme and you become all these things to all these people and then you're just like sitting there going like, and people quite often have had people in the past who were, it's particularly in sport, who have this very, like you're this way and they have this story and I think, yeah, that guy does sound like an asshole, but that's not me like Mm. that's come spend some time with me you know go go paddling with me go sit with me in the soccer field that's not me Mm. but that story you're telling yourself and that way you inform yourself about who i am i don't know how to get past that you know Mm. so i've had to like i have a lot of relationships in my life where i had to just accept that that's just the narrative and the story that exists and yeah there's no moving past it yeah because they don't even give the chance to yeah. The only way that they, you know, anything that I do, Sky, is, is that how confirmation bias works or cognitive dissonance? They just, the person's like, no, that doesn't suit what I think about you, so I'm not going to pay attention. <laughs> <laughs> and whatever. I don't know. I do my best I'm able, but huh. in most situations, I truly, I try to just kind of exist as just not those things because it, then it takes over the whole conversation. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what are you happiest doing today if we're, if we're wrapping things up? What's the, if there are things that, and, and <laughs> strive is the wrong word, if there's things, you know, if there's things that you'd like to pursue yet, if there's like, oh, I haven't tried this yet, but this is something I want to do yet, you know, in my life, or, or things that are important to you going forward. Um, relationships, hmm. honestly, and that's it. I mean, I... I love paddling. I love being on the ocean. But I could also, if you, if my family moved to the interior and there was no ocean around, I would also be fine. Mm. You know, like I love those things, and I love playing soccer with the boys, and I like, I love spending time with my kids. And the whole, I mean, that's a whole other ball game mm-hmm. um, of how pressing and you know real that feels when things go south with that. But um, yeah, people. I don't know redefining and finding space with people clearing debris (laughs) clearing debris in relationships and existing and making having people feel cared for and loved and appreciated and Mm. you know um and the same for Mm. people that's the greatest gift you can give someone else and i haven't always done that and, and i have my own share of guilt around when I haven't lived into my values and and nurtured those relationships and learned from it and onwards and upwards. Does it feel like making up for lost time in senses or? No. Yeah. No. It's today's today. Yeah. I'm good with that. You know, I'm going to walk out the door here and go to the best I'm able to nurture the relationships I have in my life. Yeah. You know, friends, family, lovers, whatever. Like, yeah. I'll do the best I'm able, and I hope for the same. And and I and the only, the only thing you can really do is we acknowledge that there is some sort of priority to it because time is, you know, this funny commodity mm-hmm. where you're like you have to assign at some point you've got to make decisions around who you spend time with, and that's the, to me that's the ultimate gesture. The ultimate gesture after everything is said and done is like who do you who do you spend prioritize your time to spend mm-hmm. with. Mm-hmm. Who will you make time with to be eye to eye with them? And that's the greatest gift you can give someone is like time spent eye to eye. 
And if you really think about it, there's not that many people you spend eye to eye time with. And if you do, it's fractional. It's, it's happening. Fleeting. Fleeting. Yeah. yeah, it's like that. So cherish it and mm. work at it and and work at it. Like, it's not going to be easy. There's going to be time where you're like, that person I'm eye to eye was driving me fucking crazy. <laughs> but but they you know, walk right at it. Like yeah. those relationships will only get, they will only deteriorate when there's too much space between them. And the only way forward is to get face to face. It's to it's to synchronize the template of and resonate with another. It's mm. to be in presence with the person and maintain propriety of your breath and not not walk away, not say that other thing. And if you do say that other thing, come back to like, hey, I you know, here here exists between us space clear of all debris. Mm. Like I got you, you got me. Let's move forward. I would look for you in the dark. Mm. <laughs> that kind of thing, you yeah. know. There and that's so that's what I'll continue to work at. All the other thing to me are all the other things in my life are peripheral mm. to that. They're all subject to the condition that they're positive contributors to the people around me, as best I am able while still self-regulating you know exist as a centered individual so you can be in service to others hmm. i have like end of sentence yeah <laughs> well simon thank you for the time and the yeah, conversation thanks. thank you and, thanks and for, and for being here yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's it for the show thanks for listening and i hope you liked it if you enjoyed the show please do me a favor and hit subscribe leave a rating and a review and most of all, tell someone else you think might like it. If you want to get in touch, a few ways you can. You can send me an email at storyuntoldpodcast at gmail.com. You can follow along on Facebook at facebook.com slash storyuntoldpodcast. Or you can follow me on Twitter at Martin underscore Bauman. Theme music for the show is by Dr. Turtle off the album You Um, I'll Ah. Uh. Next time on the show, one of the new faces changing the climbing industry. Once again, I'm Martin Bauman, and this was A Story Untold. See you next time. Mm-hmm.